Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. I suspect that, like me, most of you have been watching the scenes of Russia's invasion of Ukraine unfold this week. Not only images of bomb blasts in Kiev, but of over a million refugees fleeing west on overcrowded trains to the Polish city of Przemysl. One of the scenes that caught my attention at the train station was that of hundreds of Ukrainian men living in Poland getting on the train to go the other way, east, back to Kiev, to defend their homeland. That scene reminded me that men are hardwired, no matter what the cost, to accomplish their duty if that mission is a worthy cause. Defending their homeland is... Back in our world, so is accomplishing the mission Christ assigned to us, implementing his agenda in every sphere of my life. Being a Christian is not just trusting Jesus to forgive our sins. It is enlisting in his cause, pursuing his mission, the spread of his kingdom of righteousness over earth. This episode looks at Jesus' challenge, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what kingdom attitudes look like in the hearts of men. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 11 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Every man longs to live a significant life. Men want to be part of something greater than themselves. Author David Murrow, in his book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, argues that the church today is not capturing the hearts of men with Jesus' vision for them. He writes, Jesus had a vision. He called it the kingdom of God. It was huge. It involved nothing less than a recreation of the world, one person at a time. And we are his partners in this task. This vision was the focus of his entire life. Everything about his life was tied up in this vision. This vision is what kept him focused and on his mission. It was the reason he lived and died. Just as Jesus the Messiah came to overthrow the tyrannical reign of Satan, sin, and death to establish his kingdom of righteousness over earth, Jesus told his followers that their focus was to seek first the reign of Christ's kingdom of righteousness over earth. As Christ brings this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of righteousness to earth, this kingdom is first manifest in the transformation of the human heart. So Jesus began his portrait of kingdom life given in the Sermon on the Mount with a cameo of eight character qualities of kingdom members. Here, Jesus gives us a picture of what the human heart looks like when King Jesus rules over our attitudes. These character traits, called the Beatitudes, are a summary expression of what godly character looks like when the heart is restored to rightness, the way we were designed to respond to life. That is why Jesus introduced each of these attitudes with the word blessed or blessed. Each attitude embodies the wholeness that God originally designed us to experience, as God restores each of us to the unfallen, right attitudes that cause human life to flourish, our lives become a promo for the final fulfillment of the kingdom of God, 
when at Christ's return, he completely fixes everything in this world broken by sin. That wholeness is described by the Greek word makarios, which is translated blessed. It is the term used to describe the island of Cyprus, known as the Happy Isle, because it was thought that Cyprus was such a paradise that one would never have to go beyond its coastline to find the perfect, happy life. Today, we begin a four-week process of examining two of these Beatitudes each week. So Jesus began his sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two Greek words for poor. Pentecost means ordinary poverty. This is the word used for the poor widow who had just two copper coins to put in the offering. The other word is ptokos, which sounds like spit upon which describes one who has no coins to put in the offering, that is, one who is utterly destitute, one reduced to begging. This is the word Jesus uses for poor in spirit. The root means to crouch. The word picture is of a beggar crouching in a corner, holding out his tin cup with one hand, covering his face in shame with the other. The abject poverty described here, though, is not material financial poverty, but spiritual poverty. The poor in spirit person recognizes his utter spiritual bankruptcy. We recognize that our sin deserves God's just punishment. We have a moral debt that we can't pay. We do not have a record of doing right that can commend us to God. We must trust Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sin. Recognizing our spiritual poverty, then, is the foundation for our salvation. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. However, being poor in spirit is the key to receiving continued kingdom blessing throughout all of life, not just the entranceway to heaven. The great paradox is that those who recognize their spiritual poverty are those who become spiritually rich. How does this work in the everyday life of believers? The poor in spirit person first humbly recognizes his spiritual poverty, his crouching posture, and second asks for God's help. He holds out his cup. He does not blame others for that spiritual poverty, but cowers, owning his own moral failure. But neither does he passively remain impoverished just learning to live with his destitute moral condition. He holds out his cup. He asks for moral power to be a transformed man. This foundational life principle is embodied in the book of Proverbs, in First Peter and James, when God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here are some characteristics of a poor-in-spirit man. First, poor-in-spirit men see failure as an opportunity to depend upon Christ. Strong men don't let failure stop them, and the world needs strong, godly men. I don't know if Teddy Roosevelt was a Christian. I know he taught Sunday school before he became president. But no Christian has better captured than he has what masculine strength looks like in battling evil in our own hearts and throughout the culture. He said in a speech, it is not the critic who counts, 
not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Writing of his own struggles and weaknesses, the Apostle Paul tells us that he pled with God for God to take his thorn in the flesh away. I suspect so he could accomplish more ministry. But God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God doesn't expect us to have the strength we need in ourselves to follow Christ and win our spiritual battles. Secondly, poor in spirit men spend much time connecting with Christ the vine. Just as the beggar must beg daily for physical sustenance, Poor in spirit men are often found on their knees at the gate of the king, begging for spiritual sustenance. Poor in spirit people have come to believe Jesus' words in John 15, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. They realize they can't love their wives well, disciple their children well, or represent Christ well to their neighbors and work associates unless the Spirit of God is producing spiritual fruit in their lives. A wise person has said that Christians, instead of covering up our sins so the lost better see Christ in us, would be more effective evangelists if we would let others see our sinfulness, showing them one who needs Jesus. That's being poor in spirit. Third, poor in spirit men are connected to other men in the body of Christ. One of God's most significant provisions for spiritual strength is connection in the body. You cannot ignore this provision and be poor in spirit. God never intended us to fight our spiritual battles alone, and poor in spirit men believe that. We grow spiritually through connection. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. When I was first ordained as a pastor, I was put on the ministerial, what we call a presbytery committee in my communion, that was responsible for fixing messy relational breakdowns between pastors and their wives or churches. After a year on that committee, I realized that in every case, by the time this committee got involved, it was too late. Hearts were already hardened. So I made a decision. I began meeting weekly with a brother who could run his finger around the edges of my life and pick up problems in my marriage or other places before they did too much damage. For those who are new to the podcast, there is info in the show notes about a book I wrote on the subject of male connection entitled Got Your Back, Helping Christian Men Forge the Brotherhood Connections They Need. Fourth, Poor in spirit, people trust God 
and not their own understanding. They realize their mental horsepower is limited. They do not expect to always make sense out of what God ordains, especially the pain, trials, and suffering that he says are for our good. They don't give up trying to understand. We are called to love God with all of our mind as well as our heart, but they are experts in the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. If you think about it, it's rather arrogant for us as finite creatures to presume to understand what is best for an individual like us or for the world in general from an eternal perspective and then accuse God of not being good. This is not to say that we should suppress our doubts or questions. God Almighty can handle them, but it is to recognize our spiritual poverty. We don't have the mental horsepower to judge God. Fifth, poor in spirit men are quick to take a servant role. Paul says Jesus is the great example who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. What a picture. John 13. After the Passover meal, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Christ-like humility, choosing to count others more significant than ourselves, says Paul. Humility is not looking at myself as inferior, but not looking at myself at all, because I have learned instinctively to focus on others' needs as a priority. Finally, poor in spirit men recognize that we are not the center of the universe. God is not a cosmic Coke machine in the sky whose job is to make life taste sweet and to refresh and energize me to do what I want. God is not there to please me. I was put on planet Earth to please him. He is the creator. I am the creature. He made me for his pleasure. Human beings were created to worship God, to exalt him, to serve him as his image bears exercising dominion, to glorify him. Now, it happens that whatever is to his glory is also to my eternal benefit. You can't outgive God, but my motivations and decision-making become not, what do I want, but What will honor Christ and glorify God? Such a heart attitude is countercultural to our current me generation, but it is being poor in spirit. Jesus continues with the second kingdom attitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When we realize that blessedness, bakarios, refers to heart satisfaction, well-being, joy, even happiness, 
the startling paradox of Jesus' words becomes apparent. It is as if he is saying, happy are the unhappy. Happy are the sad. So we must ask, what kind of sorrow can it be that Christ wants us to experience and which brings the joy of Christ's blessing? Well, let me say emphatically that Jesus is not talking about human pain in general. He is not a masochist. He is not talking about the tragedy of lost Ukrainian and Russian lives in this unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. He is not talking about the sorrow that comes when your mate divorces you or your parents get a divorce. He is not talking about the grief of losing a loved one. He is talking about the grief of repentance. He's talking about godly sorrow over sin and the devastation that it brings. We know that this is the kind of mourning Jesus has in mind for two reasons. First, the context. The first beatitude, as we saw, is acknowledging our spiritual poverty as those enslaved by sin. The second beatitude quite naturally follows, that is, grieving and mourning over that spiritual poverty, that sinful propensity. Using theological terms, we say the first beatitude is about confession, the second beatitude is about contrition. The first beatitude is about our mind acknowledging sin, the second beatitude is about our heart grieving over that sin. The second reason we know that the sorrow Jesus commends here is grief over sin is the verb tense of the word mourn. The tense indicates habitual action a regular mourning that is part of everyday life. So it is very unlikely that Jesus was saying, happy are those who must go through the agony of losing a loved one over and over again. It is more likely that he is referring to those who deeply grieve over and over again over their sins as a regular part of their walk with him. This attitude of mourning over sin is explained by James when he writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So sin should always grieve us, our own sin and that of others. Let's look at how we're to grieve over our own sin, a few observations. First, grieving over our sin begins with fully owning it, confessing it. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Secondly, to grieve over our sins is to stop viewing my sin as breaking a rule and start seeing my sin as violating a relationship. Christianity is not a bunch of rules, nor even primarily a way of life. It is primarily a relationship. Keeping his commands has always been personal with God. In Deuteronomy 6.5, we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Jesus repeated the same principle. If you love me, keep my commandments. 
Although David had sinned against both Bathsheba and Uriah, whom he murdered, when David repented, his sense of personal betrayal of his God was so severe that he said, Against you, you only, have I sinned. The third way to grieve over our sin is to realize the price tag of it. Kingdom people, says Jesus, are those who weep inwardly over sin, their own sin and the sin of others. Sin is spiritual cancer. It always destroys. The wage it always pays is spiritual, emotional, physical destruction. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own sinful nature, from that nature will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life that begins now and ends in eternity. Well, how are we to grieve over others' sin? Jesus shows us. We read, And when he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus wept because he foresaw the horrific slaughter of Jerusalem's inhabitants in 70 A.D. by Roman legions because of the city's sin of rejecting him as its Savior. There are many ways we can respond to evil in the culture. We can envy those who seem to get away with violating God's law, like couples in love who just sleep with each other instead of fighting the tough battle to wait until marriage for sex, or the non-tithing neighbor who just bought that Jaguar convertible. We can be judgmental toward the sinners around us who don't go to church, use bad language, sleep around, and corrupt the morals of our kids. Or we can be angry and hostile toward the sexually broken, like the members of the LGBTQ community, especially the social activists who are ruining our country by pushing their destructive, immoral agenda. We need to stand against these efforts, But when Christ reigns in our hearts, our attitude toward evil in the world is to weep as Jesus did, to weep over our own awful disloyalty to our Creator and Savior, and weep over the horrible devastation and pain that sin brings into the lives of everyone. John Stott, in his book, Christian Counterculture, writes, Jesus wept over the sins of others, over their bitter consequences in judgment and death, and over the impenitent city which would not receive him. We too should weep over the evil in the world, as did the godly men of biblical times. My eyes shed streams of tears, the psalmist could say to God, because men do not keep your law. Ezekiel heard God's faithful people described as those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. If we would be like Jesus, we must be hostile toward evil, but compassionate toward evil's victims. (music) 
To summarize this episode, we noted that the church has failed to connect the motivation of men to devote themselves to a great cause because we have not helped them understand that the good news Jesus came to preach is not just the good news of a ticket to heaven, but the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus, the second Adam, came from heaven to set Adam's kingdom free from its slavery to Satan's sin and death, fixing everything in Adam's kingdom broken by sin. Such renewal begins in the human heart with surrender to Christ's lordship over our heart attitudes. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through where Jesus portrays the upside-down values of his kingdom, it is noteworthy that Jesus begins with our heart attitudes. The foundational perspective is poverty of spirit, seeing ourselves as spiritually destitute, reduced to holding out our cup and begging. We recognize that we do not have the moral character, status as creatures, wisdom as finite beings, or rights as Christ followers to depend upon, promote, or exalt ourselves over others. The second foundational attitude is not only admitting our utter moral poverty, but grieving over it. A heart that is grieved by my own spiritual brokenness can't be judgmental towards another's moral failures, but instead compassionately weeps over the way we humans are blinded to the sin that destroys us from the inside out. For further prayerful thought, number one, why is accepting Jesus' challenge to become like him so hard? See your show notes for additional questions. This week's past series highlight is entitled Examining God's Design of the Heart Passions that Drive Men. That begins in Season 1, Episode number 41, August 16th, 2020. It looks at a king to honor, a sphere to impact, a battle to fight, a beauty to love, a brother to labor and fight beside, a heritage to pass on. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of the past podcast series and episode that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of time. Next week, we continue our series, Our Mission to Be Like Our Master, by looking at what Jesus taught about how to be captured by the right kind of ambition and how to cultivate the inner attitude of strength under control that Jesus exhibited. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about it as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well. Oh,